I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. New York has been the focal point of the global coronavirus pandemic, just as its citizens have been on the front lines as communities across the country grapple with the brutal death of George Floyd. And at the center of both stories, right next to Governor Cuomo, has been Linda Lacewell, the superintendent of New York's Department of Financial Services and one of the country's most powerful regulators of Wall Street. Now, this makes Superintendent Lacewell a bit of a unicorn in public policy discussions, as her portfolio of responsibilities now span not only issues like the state's bit license and crypto exchanges, but also touch broader conversations involving public health and social justice. So we at Fintech Beat are especially delighted to welcome the superintendent back to the show to get an inside look as to how these very different policy worlds are colliding and to break down some news on a new program she's designing to power the state's economy forward as businesses come back online. Superintendent Lacewell, thanks so much for joining us again. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. New York has been through a lot lately in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing, as with other cities across the United States. Plus, uh, you've had to deal with being the epicenter of the COVID-19 crisis. First off, how are you guys doing? And how are you interpreting all the energy and passion for change in all of its very different forms uh, that's been released around the country and especially in New York? So great question, Chris. Of course, things are very raw in New York and across the country as uh, people react to the horrible events in Minnesota and really to the history of race relations in this country. Um, Our governor, of course, we believe is demonstrating tremendous leadership to the rest of the country across the board, you know, beginning with the COVID crisis, the, the economic crisis in its wake, and now uh, supporting the protesters while putting out a message of peace and nonviolence and trying to deter people who do not have good intent, who want to take advantage of an explosive situation and engage in violence. As the governor has been saying, there's a terrific difference between protesters and looters. They are not the same people, and we need to keep them separate as we think about these events. But New York is strong. We have been through a lot in the history of New York, and we will get through it, I have no doubt. Uh, This country has been through turmoils through history, too numerous to mention, and we do have this unusual confluence of crises, as you have mentioned, and I think it is a time of upheaval and turmoil, but we are a great democracy, and when the people speak and they speak out, democracy is a beautiful way of generating change. And that, I think, is what all government leaders need to be focused on 
is how do we use this energy to actually achieve change so that the protests don't end up being in vain. And I think we can do that. Now, you've been part of Governor Cuomo's COVID task force as the virus's grip started to take hold and grind the state's economy to a halt. How did you get involved in that response? And how did that dovetail with your work streams when you were brought on board? So let's take a step back here. Uh, Before the crisis fully emerged, I think it's fair to say all government leaders were keeping a watchful eye on the uh, contagion and potential emergence of this virus in the United States. And so I actually, uh, you know, the issue was in the news and it was very uncertain how people should be dealing with it. And this was end of February, first day of March. And I actually traveled to London with a number of other state banking commissioners under CSBS, the State Banking Organization for Regulators, to meet with um, the Bank of England and various financial regulators. I was going to meet with Andrew Bailey, newly installed, to talk about in a post-Brexit universe uh, how state regulators work together with British authorities and also, by the way, with innovators. And I was there for about, I don't think, I'm not even sure it was 24 hours. Uh, I landed, I went to, you know, the opening dinner and I get back to my hotel and my phones are all blowing up and I'm told to get on the next plane and come to Albany to the state capitol uh, to work with the governor's team. There were no planes except through Gatwick. Uh, so that tells you something. And uh, flew to JFK, got in a car, got up to Albany and went straight to work. Uh, and that's sort of how it's been ever since. Now, Yes, I'm the head of the New York State Department of Financial Services, but I worked for the governor for a long time, ever since he was the state attorney general. Uh, he did one term there and a couple terms as governor and, and ongoing. So I've known him for many years. And like many governors, he's got a, a close-knit uh, group of advisors. And if there's a crisis, he'll call on them to come be the team that helps to manage things forward. So it was disruptive to my innovation initiative at that moment, but I quickly understood that public health had to be above all else until we could stabilize the situation. Well, I know that innovation and technology have been a great priority and and really interest to you, What insight did your experience regulating things like cryptocurrencies and novel forms of consumer finance bring to your thinking? You talk about technology, you're exactly right, because you're in a crisis. You weren't expecting it. Things are starting to evolve. People start to get infected. And the first question that you have in a situation like this is, what are you dealing with? What is this? And what are you going to need to do to tackle it? And so we needed data and we needed to be able to display the data and track the data and manage the data. We needed to do data modeling. How much of a hit was New York going to take? How was that going to uh, affect our hospitals? Did we have sufficient capacity in the hospitals? The answer is no. 
how do you model to get to a place where you can generate that capacity and the need for data, because it was all about the facts, to be front and center. Because if you don't know what's happening, then you can't manage it and you can't get ahead of it. And then the data taking us on this wild ride up the mountain of the number of infections, the number of deaths, the number of people in the hospital, how many people are in the ICU, how many people are on ventilators, how many people are getting tested, and on and on and on, going up the data mountain, and then finally getting to the point where it started to stabilize, and then much, much, much more slowly coming down the other side of the mountain, which was nowhere near as steep. It was much more leveling off where we're, you know, now at the point where we're, we're back almost where we started. Uh, and obviously everyone is now guarding against a potential second wave. So yes, crisis, you need your team. Models are often, quite frankly, junk. You've got to stress test those um, and you've got to adapt them and you've got to adjust them every day with the facts. And the only thing you really have when you're dealing with this great force of an unknown is to try to identify factually whatever you can and that ends up being data points. I'm struck by just how difficult it must have been to have to deploy the tools we on this show think about and associate with creating new opportunities for people and using that skill set to quite literally track a human tragedy. Switching gears here for, for a second, then moving from your personal role as one of the governor's top deputies to your official role as the top regulator, financial regulator uh, for the state and, and by extension Wall Street, what did this all mean institutionally for the DFS? I mean, what's the DFS's role in such unusual circumstances like these? So, great question. DFS has a very important role with respect to the financial impact of this crisis. First of all, as you know, the unemployment levels are through the roof. and that is painful for a lot of people. And then the unemployment systems of all these state governments, the old bureaucracies and these old mainframe systems where there are like 25 people who know how to operate them. I exaggerate, but not by too much. The need to bring our IT infrastructure into a recent century, let's put it that way, is uh, Top line. From the DFS perspective, one of the things that we were able to do, and we did it early on, was look at what are the kitchen table issues affecting families who are now sitting home and not able to go to work? How are they going to pay their bills? And what can DFS do to be helpful in that regard? And so we worked with uh, the mortgage banking and mortgage servicer industries early on and did a 90-day forbearance on mortgage payments, right? Which is the biggest bill most people face if you're a homeowner. Uh, And said, if you don't pay for three months, there's no negative effect on your credit. 
and it doesn't affect your ability to refinance at the end. It's not going to be held against you. And you'll work it out either to refinance, put it at the end of your loan, whatever you work out with the bank is fine. So you don't get jammed with like three or four months worth of payments when this is over. We did a similar thing for um, life insurance and the life insurance industry agreed to do this with us and really stepped up in that regard where we did the same thing. We deferred life insurance payments with the same types of impacts for New Yorkers. And then property and casualty, right? Think auto, homeowner, and other types of payments that families would be incurring during this time so that we could ease some of that financial pain and that worry and stress about how am I going to buy groceries if I have all these bills and I'm not getting my paycheck and my unemployment benefits are delayed because systems are flooded. And then beyond that, when the federal government came out with their uh, PPP, payroll protection plan, uh, we really strongly encouraged our New York State chartered banks to get involved there and to get into the program and to make credit available to truly small businesses, you know, $50,000 loans, not $10 million loans, because small businesses are the backbone of the economy. It's true in New York. It's true in the nation. It's really Half the jobs out there, it's 99% of businesses are small businesses and they employ people and we need to get them back on their feet and they need to be able to pay employees. That's what that plan is about. They need also, by the way, probably capital, operating capital. And that's not something that the, the Federal Reserve can do. I mean, the Federal Reserve has really stood up to provide liquidity to the financial sector. And I think that Jay Powell has been very articulate about here's what we can do and we are doing it, but the rest is up to you, Congress, to step up and make the rest available to working people and small businesses because if we don't get money into people's hands, the downturn in this economy is going to become entrenched and more deeply entrenched. And so DFS, as a financial regulator, we actually have in our charter, economic development is part of our mission. So we are and intend to be fully engaged and active in helping small businesses get back on their feet. And we'll be putting some information out about what our New York chartered entities have been doing to help small business. I think they've really stepped up. I applaud them. And more to come. What is your view as as to how successful that PPP program has has been? I mean, do you get a sense as uh, you know from from New York's perspective um, that more money should be allocated? Um, you, you had mentioned you know the, the the technical infrastructure even at even at at, at the federal level. You know, we we had lots of uh, websites crashing and 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 the like. Um, did you have any impression? As you interfaced with the federal government, as to just logistically what needs to be sort of thought about or, or focused on when, when it comes to translating those policies into capital and into assistance um, for uh, families and, and, and working bu- and small businesses? Well, I think it's very difficult with divided government and partisanship to get everything right through a legislative solution. 
And even the best of legislatures are large collaborative bodies and trying to get something through that they're getting 100% right is going to be difficult, which is why I sometimes feel like they should just give the money to the people who know how to do it right or give the authority to the people who know how to do it right. Um, I think the PPP program initially has been mixed. It was good that the federal government acted uh, and got money out quite fast. But I think it's fairly well agreed at this point that some of the both restrictions and latitudes of the program led to unintended, hopefully unintended results, where on the one hand, the businesses who were getting the money had to pay people for X period of time, and otherwise, if they don't, they have to pay all the money back. And that's really just one model of the kind of help that businesses need, depending on how long they're being shut down. And then secondly, because of a lack of restrictions on the program, money, look, everybody is going to apply. And if you qualify, why wouldn't you apply for this cheap money? And so very large businesses applied, businesses that wanted it to grow applied, and they have the best lawyers and the best accountants and the best grant application, loan application people. They got in there first. The the large federally regulated banks went to their customer base, which is big companies. And uh, that's who got all the money up front until there was an outcry. And then some of these businesses had to give the money back. Now, you know, the next round and with the focus on let's try to make it smaller business and let's give money to what are called CDFIs um, that can, uh, you know, help minority communities, low-income communities, and can get out smaller loans, I think is more thoughtful. But there are so many gaps, the lack of direct funding to the state and to the cities that have the primary responsibility funding essential services, police, fire, teachers, and so on. If the states don't have this money, how are they going to pay? They're in physical distress with the budgets. The cities don't have the money. state doesn't have the money. They can give the local aid to the cities. And then how do people get paid and how do they know they have jobs and how are there not cutbacks? And that is a partisan issue in Washington, to my understanding. Um, and we've got to remember that the role of government is to help people. And government is in trust for the people. This is not, well, I'm a congressperson and I get a lot of money from big corporations and that's who I'm going to cater to. That's not how government is supposed to work. It is the people of this nation who give their power in trust to government, whether you are elected or appointed or an employee. All public employees have the same obligation to act in the best interest of the people. And that's what everyone needs to be doing. And I think the expressions of unhappiness and discontent across the country on a whole range of issues in part is stemming from a feeling of it's us and them and government is not acting for the people and government is not taking care of people and it's all about other people or other 
corporate interests or, you know, feelings of is law enforcement being protected and the people are being abused. It's all the same running theme of it's not my government and you're supposed to be my government. So why don't you act in my interest and in our interest? And we can only hope that the pressure from the people in the form of protest and and outcry and those who have been in government before speaking up as they are now doing about the way things are supposed to work in the greatest democracy in the world will generate energy that is needed for change across the board, not just reform and law enforcement. Yes, that's critically important. Change in economic policy. What role then, especially given the tumult of the last several weeks, should we start concluding that fintech can can then play? To bring it back around to innovation, we don't currently have the ability for the federal government to get money immediately into the hands of people when they are in distress. Because that's not how our financial system works. And it's not how our bureaucracy works. And there are great vacuums and openings there for fintech to step in. We don't have the ability to get unemployment benefits to people fast enough. These IT systems are overwhelmed. We don't have the ability to contact trace the the transmission of this deadly disease for which there's no vaccine without deploying armies of people to do the contact tracing. And yes, that's an opportunity for jobs, which is a very positive thing. But at some point, we're going to need technology to carry that mission forward. And I know that Apple and others have generated a framework, but I've yet to see an app that really works and that folds in with the health department to manage this critically important issue. So when I first took over DFS, I said, consumer is at the center of everything we do because everything we do affects a real person. And I said, we need innovation internally at DFS and externally in our communities uh, and in the markets to move forward and be ready for the changes and challenges that are already amidst us. Those two things remain centrally true during and after this multi-pronged crisis, and we are fully committed to continuing to help the consumer, the individual, the family, the small business, and to support innovators as they move forward to develop technology solutions and strategies to help all of us. Now let's look forward. No one can say how long it will last or how deep it will be, but Clearly, a lot of work is going to be needed to help the economy recover from these successive shocks. Um, I know you've taken the time to develop a series of new initiatives coming straight out of the DFS, and maybe you can provide a sneak peek to our FinTech Beat audience as to what you may have in mind. Yes. So we did a pilot program earlier this year on InsureTech called Project Whitehall through our research and innovation division under Matt Homer. And that was very successful as a way to give input to nascent entrepreneurs who are thinking of developing InsureTech solutions and wanted input from our regulator. So breaking news on your show, we are announcing DFS Fast Forward, which is a new program at DFS to provide support to innovators who can devise novel digital solutions that help to advance 
our recovery from the pandemic. And the purpose here really is to get speed to market for innovators, reduce barriers, and help them help New York to build back better uh, in terms of job creation, economic development, and better products and services. And in that regard, we're focusing on three areas. One, of course, is health which means delivering better tools to address the needs of New Yorkers through health tech tools, including the area of telehealth, small business, where we need to help small business to survive, adapt, and grow and operate in a challenging environment. And then third, resilience for families, for households, to help them to build greater financial resilience in this challenging environment. And so we're very excited to do this and we're going to be engaging with industry and collecting ideas and screening those and engaging in conversation with those who have promising ideas and some nexus to DFS, whether they're regulated by us or they're connected to a DFS regulated entity uh, and I don't mind also, you know, connecting them where appropriate um, with other agencies if it's not suitable for us, because this is the time for government to step up, but it is also the time for innovators to step up. What we have seen historically is innovators have a lot of good ideas, but what is the uptake on that? What is the conversion rate? Well, we're all now forced to uptake and convert because the need is overwhelming. So let's see now what we can do together now that the pace of innovation, at least on the uptake side, is fully accelerated. And we are in a place of need that no one ever had before. So DFS supports innovation. We support economic development and jobs. And we want success in New York. New York is the center of finance, center of innovation. Let's make it all work together so that we can deliver the products and services through technology that we need in health, in small business, and for family households. You know, that really is very interesting. I mean, I don't know, I've seen certain sort of hints of that direction outside of the country, outside of the United States, where people are trying to figure out a more integrated approach to sort of sparking and supporting um, everything from national industries to small businesses, but but within the United States, you know, having one particular state regulator focusing on um, uh, innovation and fintech across, you know, very different, um, but yet sort of critical anchors of the economy. You know, it, when I listen to that, I'm thinking to myself that that's really a, a job that state regulators are best positioned to to do, just because of their broader uh, mandates. And uh, uh, it'd be, in, in some ways, rather challenging for the federal government to, to even begin to do. Uh, but, but that's really, really interesting. Um, when do you think that you're going to get this, this program actually sort of uh, on the road in terms of uh, uh, reaching out to, to different stakeholders and potential constituents? Well, I think we've been paving the way, and we're camera ready, and there'll be details on our website. And uh, Matt Homer, our innovation head, is, is in touch and will we'll reach out. And he's man to see, as they say. 
So I think his phone is going to be ringing off the hook. Well, we will be one of the ones ringing. Hey, thank you so very much, Superintendent, for for making it onto the show and and really the best of luck to you and your team uh, in New York. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for what you do as well. My pleasure. Be well. One reason why I, along with many people of color, have found fintech to be especially interesting has to do with its potential, in the right hands, of dramatically increasing financial opportunities for people who have long been underserved in the financial economy. And I have been constantly awed and inspired by so many people working for the causes of equality for women, the young, people in rural areas, and people of color. That said, the George Floyd killing is one of those gut-wrenching, painful moments that are now hitting home far too often, requiring everyone to take stock as to where we are, who we are, and what more can be done. And the fintech community has this responsibility as well, from regulators to market participants. And we'll be taking time to dig deeper into these issues in the weeks ahead. Stay tuned, everyone, and stay safe. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. We'd love to hear from you. FinTech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note a global technology and media company.